If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, um, and thank you all for coming out on such an inauspicious evening, but why wouldn't you? It's such a delight to be able to do this. Um, we've already had some indication of Sean's plaudits, but I live to embarrass my fellow writers. <laughs> um, so I will go on to list some of the other things, all down Darkness Wide, his remarkable memoir, which is sort of haunted by the spirit of Gerard Manley Hopkins, was um, shortlisted for Biography of the Year at the Irish Book Awards, longlisted for the Indarchi Prize and the Polari Prize, and last year, you awarded the Rooney Prize for Literature 2022. Yes. Yeah. Um, he's also recently published 300,000 Kisses, which is a wonderful uh, kind of lightly done lyric transliteration of queer Greek fragments of verse, accompanied by incredible illustrations by Luke Edward Hall. And Rapture's Road that we're here to talk about tonight is probably the favourite volume of contemporary poetry I've read in years, which I experienced as a sort of Dante-esque uh, midway through a forest. My life I found myself within a forest. I was sort of following Virgil into a dark wood where you're encountering the erotic grief, sorrow, transgression, grace. It's everyone by two or three copies is a bare minimum. We're going to begin by having Sean read a couple of poems and then we're going to have a conversation in which I will try to disconcert and uh, enchant him in equal measure. Then we'll have a couple more readings and then there'll be plenty of time for the kind of penetrating, erudite but warm questions we expect from the audience at the LRB. So to begin with, can we have a poem or two, please? Yes. Um, hello, everyone. Uh, it's really good to see so many of you uh, and thank you, Sarah. Um, I thought I would just begin right at the beginning Sarah has, has introduced the book wonderfully there, and I, I don't really have anything more to say, apart from we begin in January, so I thought I'd begin there. The book is kind of a, a dreamscape, so not all of it is true, which is a nice thing to be able to say. A ministry. Why did you bring me here again, feet? Although it is January and seasonably cold, there is a gathering in the copse above the lake. Fires, only a few icy stars. The air in the hillocks pocketed with mist. Like the inside of a mussel shell. The way the night sky sheens humid and bone hard and lucent. The dark haired youth dancing between the rowans in his red flame stitched tunic is not me. I like it when his torso snaps, when he puts this vine of windflowers between my lips. Little bird, he likes it when I break 
among the tamarisk, the feather moss, setting the paper wings in the grass aflight. I suppose it is just like grief to open until a voice comes out. Just so, how each night I play both sinner and priest, assigning prayers, the dog collar, the dove, the blister of thorns. Yes, I have been here before. Soon the fires will smoke white with the sound of pines. One of us will be chosen. I have tried each time to be kind to myself, to forgive both men. Between the ornate screen of the winter branches, I walk my body, or my body walks me. Firmer now the dark-haired youth behind me. He likes it. He likes me when I break. It gives him something to assemble. Good boy, good mirror. A white moth settles on my tongue. Beautiful and mine, these nights I fall, forgive, commit. And only now does God, our audience of one, come in to lift the blanket from my cage. When I break, I break predictably into song. I just read one more poem, a short little sonnet. It's called Little Flower. While I slept, you were there, little flower, little lantern in the sullying rain, in the night, all alone and singing, while I slept, while I woke in the empty sleep. I thought a saint came with a face, little flower, pale and leant above me. It shone in a gold hood. My cheek, it touched me. I slept three years or more, but I was somewhere, little flower, you saw me. And it was you who was singing, your mouth, little flower, an ember blown red, then white. And I was a ghost at last, little flower, silken, walking the bridge, and my hair was aflame, and at last my life was gone. And come home, come home, little flower. You called to me. Thank you. And I think I would like to begin with something that is so striking about both your prose and your poetry, which is a very particular engagement with and use of the natural world. There's a fragment from a Greek poet um, in 300,000 Kisses that seems to me almost an epigram for your work of Eros Wakes with the Seasons. How do you feel that uh, the natural world permits a kind of licence and a liberty from social, political, religious or even gender mores in your work? It seems a, a kind of genesis from the natural world, not just a descriptive place. Yeah, I think to me, every poet kind of needs a myth or like a mythic world in which they will write. And I think for me the the source of that myth is the natural world. Um, And so sometimes it will be the real natural world and other times it's not. So, for example, in in this book, you know, you might be in Dublin 
but there are olive groves and myrtle flowers and citrus uh, and things like that growing. And I think primarily, like you said, it allows you to think in a different way because it is not by any means attached to the way we think. It's not cultured. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't have a a set of social codes. It doesn't have a set of sexual uh, mores. It doesn't have... It is affected by all of those things, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't in itself have them. And I think in that way, it gives you license to follow something imaginative outside of the way you would ordinarily think. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that's how it works in the poems. But it also gives me access to something else that I'm really interested in, which is, you know, as ill-defined as it is still in my mind, the spiritual. And to me, it kind of feels like a portal to Mm. that because it thinks differently. And I think if the spiritual is anything, it's something that thinks differently. So... It's extraordinary that you're able to visit that sense of the sacred on the natural world. And I I was struck recently by something you said in an interview, which is that out of all the romantic poets, and it would be easy to think that you felt an affinity Mm. to the romantics generally, it's John Clare Mm. with whom you have the most sympathy. And in his poem, I Am, his his version of the natural world is that it's empty Mm. and he'll and it's unpeopled, and, that, and that's why he likes it. It's quite the reverse with yours. The natural world is utterly peopled. It's mm. a person itself. Yeah. The, the moths, the lichens are yeah. persons. But there's men, and there's love there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm always kind of thinking about what, what my natural world is, and even, and even just being able to say my natural world kind of gives you a sense of the artifice of mm-hmm. that natural world, in that, uh, you know, there's a moment in... Rapture's Road, where I kind of turn to camera a little bit <laughs> and say, the poem is only three lines. It's, uh, my God, I thought the world is so empty, I have peopled it with such dreams. And I think that's the moment of doubt, doubting the mythology. Yes. Because <laughs> um, yeah. I would like to think of this natural world as being fully peopled and full of things. But in this book, I also came to have to address the idea that it was being unpeopled of things Mm. quite rapidly. And so I think that kind of brought the sort of mythology that Tongues of Fire was involved in into question. And that kind of became the source of the tension in this book. Yeah. Mm. Do you also feel visited by the sense of the climate? uh, Instinctively, I want to say climate apocalypse, which I suspect is because some of the language that is used in Raptors Road in particular is is full of a kind of foreboding possibilities mm. of desire and a companionship but one of the possibilities of, of is of collapse yeah. and very often i note that the animals particularly moss that you mention in our shared mythology tend to be harbingers of doom or death yeah. do you find yourself consciously or unconsciously responding to the natural world in that way yeah Definitely. I mean, I think it it became more impossible for me not to in this book because it was almost like the subject of your your hope or the things that you live by, which are things that give you hope Mm -hmm. and joy, are being taken away. Yeah. And if the first book could retain a sort of hope, I think this one found it more more difficult Mm -hmm. to do that. But I didn't want to write a hopeless book. And I think one of the possibilities of, of a poem or, or any piece of writing is to draw your attention to beautiful things mm. that you then might lose. So in some poems, it's lost and it's gone. 
and they're almost kind of post-apocalyptic yeah. poems. And in other cases, it's not. So the book kind of oscillates between that. I mean, the rapture of the title, you know, is, <laughs> um, is kind of doing both of those things, I hope, that you're talking about, you know, love and passion and rapture, apocalypse and death and rapture, you know, yeah. both of those things kind of coincide. Yeah, I wanted to kind of hit that head on in the book. It hadn't been something that I felt was possible before. And I think that's because when the first book came out, people termed it eco-poetry, mm. which I was... I kind of got why they would do that. But I also, because I felt that in some ways the natural world was mythic in the poems, yeah. I didn't think it really conformed to eco-poetry in that way. But people nevertheless wanted me to write poems or speak about poetry in terms of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And because of the sort of person I am, if, if you want me to do it, I kind of, uh, you know, I couldn't do it. I couldn't write a poem yes. that was addressing climate crisis yeah. because I felt that I was being told to. Yeah. Whereas now, when everyone stopped telling me, uh, they, kind of, they kind of all came out. So, so yeah, yeah. There was a moment earlier where you talk about hope uh, uh, as, as a form of virtue. Mm. And um, since I always have one foot in the chapel, um, I immediately turn to other forms of virtue. And there's a quality in your work, which is rarely written about or even understood now, which is that of grace, mm. which is very ill-defined, even mm. by you know, philosophers and theologians, but I think of it as being the capacity to extend an empathy and an understanding to fellow creatures under all circumstances mm -hmm. because you're conscious of what you have received in our ability to respond to the natural world yeah. or respond to desire in that way. I'm really struck by the poem about uh, where you kind of resurrect a man who was a victim of a homophobic hate crime mm -hmm. in the 1980s, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't mean to kill Mr. Flynn. Yeah. And... That, to me, is an epitome of the form of grace that is in your work in the sense that I don't think you have a sense of vengeance, but no. rather of extreme sorrow and extreme empathy. Yeah. And so you've kind of resurrected both the victim and, and the murderers. And that's kind of troubling because it's easier to feel vengeance because then we're all exculpated from mm. any ill feeling ourselves. But instead, you're encouraging a sort of... Yeah, I find it hard to write the sort of political poem that would come from an opinion held firmly <laughs> um, because it always seems to just track a straight line through a poem that I end up being quite uninterested in, yeah. in getting to. So I think if grace is one way of putting it, I think poetry for me kind of naturally lends itself to the sort of ambivalence mm -hmm. of empathy, if yeah. that makes Absolutely, any sense. Yeah. Um, because you're, you're trying to turn a subject over and over and see it from different sides, and you hope that you can put all of those sides into a poem mm -hmm. somehow. So they seem kind of like empathy machines in that way. But I think, you know, grace is one of the things that we don't speak about, and it's one of the things that I am interested in. And I think I'm interested in a lot of unfashionable things or unmodern things. You know, like, I, I'm not a very ironic writer. I don't like irony particularly. But I'm also quite invested in something that I don't think people talk about that often, which is beautiful mm -hmm. things. And it kind of sounds a bit ludicrous now, whereas, you know, in the 18th and 19th centuries, you would have had volumes and volumes on the idea yeah. of what is beautiful. And now I don't think people necessarily think that is a, yeah. even a good quality yeah, sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I think they mistrust it, but I don't mistrust it. 
There's an amazing moment in Oscar Wilde's trial where someone asks him if he thinks a particular piece of work is immoral. The priest and the acolyte. Mm. And the judge says, you know, Mr. Wilde, do you think this is immoral? And he said, it's worse than that. It's badly written. <laughs> and, and I think what he's saying and what you're touching on there is that beauty has virtue yeah. in the platonic sense of the noble and the good being intrinsically intertwined. <laughs> and actually, I'd like to talk more about the style of your verse and how it runs like a salmon upstream against the contemporary notion that the best thing that you can say a book about a book is that it's spare and taut, like mm. a famine victim. Mm. You know, everybody's afraid of beauty and excess. Mm. It has become desperately unfashionable for, for reasons that I don't understand. And, and I deplore, and one of the reasons I respond with gratitude to your work, actually, is to find a writer who privileges beauty, not as a mere aesthetic, but as having moral purpose. Yeah, well, well, I think it kind of does have moral purpose. And thank you. Uh, it's, it's nice to find someone who, who likes it uh, for that reason. Um, I think, you know, we were talking before about subjects that may be despairing. But I am kind of a firm believer that if you put that subject on the side of beauty, you give a hope within the despair, if only in music mm -hmm. could be a sort of hope or, yeah. or you know something beautifully made uh, holds something back from that abyss it might fall into and so I think I'm kind of fundamentally uninterested in writing something that is deliberately ugly mm -hmm. and despairing my usual sense is to have a dialectic between those two things yeah. and to put and to pull it into um, but then uh, again you know something again that I don't think we speak about very much is people's personality as a writer. There are some things you can't help. Mm -hmm. And as much as I might like to philosophize why I write certain things in certain ways, as if it's a conscious decision, mm -hmm. I think it's actually just a stamp of personality yeah. uh, that I can't avoid. Yeah. So it is in my personality to want to harmonize rather than you know, have something atonal. Yes. Yeah. I think that's something that's not understood or spoken about much, certainly in sort of teaching, is that writers do not inhabit an entirely separate character when they open their laptop, mm. because wherever you go, there you'll be, and that the work is the extension of the self, mm. which is quite troubling when you read some people's work. But... Uh, but <laughs> But, but fascinating too. Yeah. Um, one of the things, obviously, that distinguishes these books is a, is a quite muscular engagement with queerness and actually gayness, which mm. is a, a kind of slightly, actually slightly separate thing, which is a politically charged statement. But I think probably true. And I think there's something very interesting about the way you frame queerness as being in some way sanctified and separate. And I'd love to talk about that because I think the impulse of equality and of all the legislations that have been necessary and belated has been to make something ordinary, to bring it within the ordinary, mm. to bring it within the normal. But this seems to me to be a defiance of that and to plead for its separateness in, in the sense that all forms of life are distinguished and separate. Um, and that, that's something that I find incredibly compelling and unusual, actually. Yeah, I mean... You know, part of this book came out of, uh, I was poet in residence at the Irish Queer Archive in the National Library of Ireland, which is this huge archive of documents going back 
from kind of the mid '60s through to the to the '90s, newspaper articles and leaflets and committee meetings and everything. Uh, it's absolutely a huge archive, and I had to write poems out of that. But I think I had an education, a kind of education by osmosis in queer theory mm-hmm. from the '70s, '80s, yep. '90s, and I found I responded much better to it than that kind of assimilative. Uh, queer theory uh, and it wasn't necessarily that I was reading theory but I was reading the writing of everyone who had read it and, and were a kind of activists and, and community organizers but one of the things I hope that the that the poems might do is to to see these kind of spaces you know sometimes it's like cruising sites or you know historical events uh, as privilege sites you know mm. we kind of talk about privilege as if it's which I understand I'm not saying this isn't true, but that certain people have privilege and it's entirely hierarchical. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that that does us down. You know, if, if you say queer people are privileged because we have all of these things that straight people don't have, you know, that is a reframing of the question. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are other things that we don't have and other people are comparatively more privileged. But I, I think focusing on on the things that are special mm-hmm. or sacred or, you know, whatever, are also valuable places to look. So seeing, for example, the opportunity in the poems to uh, walk out at night and meet a stranger in a park, that sounds like a privilege mm-hmm. to me, you know, in a, in a way. So I wanted to make space for that anyway. And I'm also just kind of fundamentally attracted to these... They feel ad- adventurous to me, these mm-hmm. ways of living. And I think I'm quite interested in adventurous ways of living. They feel escapist. Yes. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. And I think it's challenging for some sort of sections of the, of the maybe less tutored discourse to, uh, to understand that, that equalities and rights and safety should be extended including towards the difference mm. the assimilation and fining down of those things yeah. it, it, that's not that's not a form of equality that's mm-hmm. a form of kind of uh, thinning everything out Mm -hmm. and I actually think it's a really good uh, redress to some fiction in particular that likes to frame queer lives and actually particularly gay men as being sort of a noble suffering kind of vessel uh, but through which everybody learns a lesson about their straight lives because you know that the the sort of gay man has suffered in a terribly poetic way I'm not talking about any book in particular (laughs) Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. I'd like to talk about company and companionship. There's a wonderful line in All Down Darkness Wide, your memoir, which I have copied down because it it stuck with me, but I have no memory, so Mm -hmm. I didn't trust myself to recite it. 
And he said, there was this procession of men walking beside me, people I knew and loved being added to it, and one by one their lights were being put out. And there's a great sense of you situating yourself in a tradition of writing, particularly of male writing, but not exclusively. Mm. And we'll talk about that separately. Aga Shahid Ali's poem is is an epigram right at the beginning, and there's other poets that you engage with. Every now and then I'll read and I'll find, oh, that's... That's some Hardy or that's yeah. some Gerard Manley. I'm glad you got the Hardy. The original thank you. light yes, blue gown. Thank you. I'm your I ideal reader no right here. No, yeah. of course I <laughs> <laughs> And I have a wind hover tattoo, yeah. so you know, anyone might <laughs> help you. I'd like to talk about that and about this, again, a sense of virtue, but also a sense of placing yourself not within a writing tradition, but within Mm. a kind of thought tradition and a life tradition and what that does for your readership and and and, and literature's function as a kind of campfire, right, that people can kind of warm themselves Mm. around. Yeah, uh, I'm really glad you got the hardy. I was really afraid (laughs) no one would get that. Um, Yeah, I, I, I occasionally will... I suppose one of the reasons is that you spend so long writing a poem or rewriting a poem that you begin to kind of ornament it with your ideas and it becomes fun in a way. You know, that there is a sense of play in writing, of course. And I like to think, you know, like there are jokes in the poems, but if you read them, (laughs) because or at least there might even just be jokes that I think are amusing when Mm -hmm. I write them. And I like to have little winks to readers who will say, hi, you got Hardy there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. great. So that is fun. It also seems to me to set up uh, that kind of echo. Uh, it sounds out a, a corridor through time <laughs> to Hardy or mm-hmm. to Thomas Wyatt, who found his way in here somewhere, um, or to Aga Shahid Ali or whoever it is. Um, and it acknowledges them. Yes. Um, and it brings whatever that poem was about into this poem. So it's kind of a sh- like a shortcut portal mm-hmm. through. So, you know, I've, I've stolen... No, I didn't steal a title from Thomas Wyatt. I, I, I stole... No, I did steal a title from him. Yeah. Is that poem called Who's Solicitor Hunt? Yeah. yeah. They, I stole the title. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think, you, to my mind, that poem in Rapture's Road was, a, it was quite tightly knit. And it wasn't that I was worried no one would know what it was about. But I thought if they get the title and then they read the Wyatt poem, they will see some of what this poem is about too. Um, so setting up that conversation felt fun. Yes. Uh, uh, kind of a little treasure trove for you to go after. So sometimes it's... And also, you know, you follow your imagination and, and the kind of echoes that happen inside your head when you read any book mm. or text where you think of another book or another writer or even down to the word original and Hardy, I can kind of not say the word original without thinking of the original Air Blue. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so, so I kind of see Emma Hardy when I say original. Yes, yeah. Why shouldn't you see that, yeah. you know, in the poem? So, There's yeah. a, uh, the use of the word palanquin yeah. made me think of Aga Shahid Ali and some of his poetry. And, and yeah. I think it's one of the beauties about having the, the privileges that we have as writers mm. is, is a communion yeah. um, and a feeling of lend and borrow yeah. that is so enriching. And yeah. that, but I don't think it excludes readers. I don't think it's a sort of a cosy little in-joke no. that excludes readers. It's just a, a treasure there if you, if you have yeah, to stick I didn't, in the right place. Yeah, I mean, Palinkin I, I stole from Joanna Newsom. Uh, she oh, was really? the first person <laughs> who I, I'd never... It's in Go Long, the song... Um, I think, 
She used the word palanquin, and I didn't know what a palanquin was when I first heard that song, so I looked it up. And I thought that's going in a poem sometime. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I stuck That's it. a very good yeah. example of the, the art of the poetic in particular, which is words existing as objects, mm. not just as, as a sign. As It's not just a part of a semiotics, but you write it, you put it down on the page. And even the form of the lettering, like a rune, is unusual in some way. Yeah. And, you, and you kind of catch it. So even if you don't know the meaning, there's, there's something about the, the sound or the way it appears that sort of strikes things off. You talked about time then, and I think there is an, a, a kind of series of acts of resurrection mm. in the book, in all your work, actually, which are haunted by loss. And mm. I'm using the word haunted very deliberately. The death of your father, um, the loss of uh, members of the community, uh, the loss of time itself. Mm. Um, and there's a, a wonderful Shakespeare sonnet, and I won't um, get the number right, but he says, since stone nor uh, it, and everything is um, overswayed by time. And then he says, but in black ink, my love shines bright. And it's a sonnet about the power of verse mm. to, to raise Lazarus, right, to yeah. defy time. And I think your work is pinning time down in that way. Mm. Um, do you find a, that it's a, an act of restitution in some way, that grief can be uh, mollified or made precious by the act of writing? I think so. I think it's a, it's a sort of, um, uh, how would I put it? It sort of uh, doesn't atone for the loss, but it makes something of the loss, mm -hmm. you know? And I think, you know, the poems, well, the poems I write always seem to be interested in, yeah, like you say, resurrection. I think it's a, it's a, it's a very apt way. I'm going to steal it, actually, because that's also <laughs> rapturous. Um, and I think, you know, a lyric poem in particular is a sort of stay against time as well as a, a I, d I don't think it's always something that must resurrect but it can pause as well, or it can hold something. Uh, so sometimes the poems are written very shortly after an experience, and they're just to hold an experience, I guess. In the same way, I think sometimes, you know, I take a lot of photographs, photographs that I'll never show anyone, you know, like everyone does on your mm -hmm. phone. Why do I take a photograph of, of a building with a blue sky when I'm walking down? Because I find it beautiful, mm -hmm. and I will probably never look at it again, but there's some impulse for wanting to to catch it. Yeah. And I think that's what the poems, like the impulse of a poem is. But you have the power to, not only to, to catch that building and the blue sky, but to put someone that you love into the photograph. Mm. So why wouldn't you? So you put them in. Uh, you know, they're, they're making little pictures yeah. um, for yourself. And rather than photographs that I will never look at again, I sometimes do read <laughs> <My poems. laughs> um, sometimes because uh, sometimes I forget I've written them mm. as well there are a whole kind of stacks of poems that could have been in this book that I probably will never publish but sometimes I look through the documents and I think huh. yeah that's very interesting that you talk about whether or not somebody will read these things and I, I wonder to what extent do you envisage your readers and the, or the receipt of the poem while you're writing are um, they absent in the act or do you feel an, a sort of urge to give uh, no, they're absent in the act because I'm the reader. Mm. I am them in the act, I think. The only way I can edit a poem is to read it aloud and to try and encounter it as a reader. Yeah. And I think the only way that I know if anything's ever any good is if I read it back and I almost have the sense of experiencing it like a reader because I feel a sort of joy 
at the finishing. Yes. Um, and I think that is a sort of surprise that you've done it. Yes. And that is the thing that I write for. I think primarily, you know, if if I could read back something that I've written and feel the joy I might feel when reading someone else's poem, I think maybe there's a chance that someone else will yeah. like this poem. Yeah. So I don't often think of readers, although, you know, initially I don't. But then when it comes to adding nods to readers, mm. that's deliberate. I kind of want a reader to feel that I'm there um, and that I know they're there and that I'm kind of winking at them. Yes. Um, Is that a feeling so, of company again yeah, that we were yeah, talking about? Yeah. yeah. And I kind of want to be company. And I don't like the idea that I would be entirely impersonal to a reader. I like the voices of authors best too, whose work I think I can feel them mm, in. Yeah. I don't really like impersonal books. And I think, I don't really know how I would judge that, apart from sometimes I pick up a book and, and, I, and I can't hear a person in it. Yes, it's I, that kind of yeah. affectless. Well, this returns almost to the question of style, which I do want to talk about mm. more. And that there is a sense of the kind of fashion and the way the language that is used to describe generally accepted good, in inverted commas, modes of writing. And I wonder, do you, do you think about style and out of style and have any anxieties around it? Because one of the feelings that I experienced when I first read your work was gratitude that I didn't feel quite so alone in, in sort of being a 19th century <laughs> vicar <Yeah. laughs> um, shedding dust as I walk um, and essentially I think in iambic pentameter yeah. um, and I find that quite difficult you know so you sort of hear people praise to the skies as you know not a word wasted and you think mm. well why would you not waste a word the the world is full of language yeah. that I work for the rest of my life I will never conquer the richness of the vocabulary and the framework that's on offer to me and I'm supposed to not waste it oh, it's extraordinary mm. notion do you have a sense of yourself as kind of running ag against something and is it is that in some way helpful um I do now a little bit I didn't at the, when I first started writing because I didn't really read much contemporary poetry or oh, the people that I did read were kind of you know I, I read a lot of Alice Oswald is kind of the first poet who I read where I thought I guess I really love contemporary poetry which I, I, I hadn't really been exposed to before and she has a rich language yes. I think and a rich music so that kind of I just followed her and a couple of other poets that I think you know I hadn't realized that that would be unfashionable when I first started writing poetry was a time in the UK at least where irony was kind of at its peak and you know pop culture references were at their peak and, and everything was kind of sarcastic and blah 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 and I just didn't like it and I didn't like the poems but I couldn't write anything else mm -hmm. than the poems yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I wrote so I just wrote them and I think you know, the most gratifying thing to me always is that readers like the poems. Yeah. And they're not particularly interested, unless there's a reviewer in the audience, um, in whether <laughs> I get good reviews. Um, because I, my main thing is that you are here and, and you read the, the book and that you like it. And I think it can be a bit hollow to, to try and chase a trend. Mm -hmm. You'll never, you'll never chase a trend. No, it'll uh, move it'll as move. soon as you. Yeah. Uh, so I think you have to plow your own, your own way. Um, 
And this is just the way that I write because I think it's fundamentally who I am. Uh, but I think also, perhaps in common with you, although through a different route, you know, and I grew up in a house with, with, not many, with not many books, with, you know, a small bookshelf, smaller than that, in which there was kind of A to Z's, a Bible. Uh, I remember there was Middlemarch. If you're going to have then, one novel, I suppose. You know, kind of the odd, like a Roddy Doyle book that someone had lent to someone and it just found its way onto the shelf. There was not many books. And so I started reading because I, I was in charity shops and because that was the books I could afford. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had 50p to spend on a book do I buy the one that says classics on it or do I buy this random one that I don't know what it is? Yeah. Um, so I just read all of the kind of Victorian novels yeah. that yeah. were in, on the classic shelf. And those are the books I loved. And I was already kind of out of time. Yeah. Uh, kind of by a few centuries <laughs> in terms of what I was reading. And it wasn't by any sort of willful, willfulness or, or a sense that those were better. It was just... Those are the books I had. And so obviously they give the fruit of those books and that reading mm-hmm. is going to feel different than the fruit of someone who grew up on 80s fiction. Yeah. You know? So, but I don't feel the need to excuse it. Um, no. I, I will learn from you. <laughs> I'm too timid. Um, I think what's really interesting also is that despite the relatively specific incidents which as you say some of which are a form of storytelling which Mm -hmm. is something that people forget when they're reading poetry that it can be a form of narrative too that you have a kind of universal readership too and there was something very moving when you said a woman had got in touch and she'd read one of your poems and it seemed to her to be about pregnancy and childbirth and Mm. I I, one doesn't like to raise the specter of it if I leave this but when he talked about the quality of universality as marking out great literature that is a quality that these books have I think that they're able to be specific and universal at the same time which is uh, that can't be arrived at um by by sort of design it's it comes from that integrity I think I've had a gesture from the man in charge um and so would you please read Sorry, again, the and then we have heaps of time for questions. Um, okay, two poems. Mm-hmm. I will read. Um, I, I'm going to read one of the ballads. There's, there's a couple of ba- talking about old-fashioned things. I, for some reason, ended up writing ballads, but uh, you only have to suffer two of them in the book, um, uh, which I'll be glad of. I'll read you one called "Night Ballad," I think, which I. I wrote thinking about... It was written for radio originally, which is where the ballad came from. You can see how unfamiliar I I am with my own book. I don't know where it is. Um, And, uh, yeah, it was written for radio. And I was thinking about, you know, those questions I would never have have brought to a poem, which was the the loss of biodiversity. Uh, But I also kind of wanted to make a love poem. So it's kind of a post-apocalyptic biodiversity loss love poem um, about kind of rewilding in some way but it's also not at all uh, and um it's called night ballad the owl in the woods has a hollowed cry and the moth has a furry flutter but you my love and me alone have the tender touch of another unspirited now untenanted waste the meadow all locked in its end All hours are after, all pasts are done, and the future too heavy to bend. 
The hedgehog is haunted by dreams of the fox and the fox by the bands of men. But come, my love, with me alone to inhabit those years again. Come down, come down between the yews to the glade where the last flowers bloom. For all colour is gone, all wonder is lost to the coal and the petrol fume. Come petal the night, its amorous scent, with primrose and jasmine and phlox. What spirits might rise, what vapours appear, when our seeds have ruined the clocks? I guess I'll read, you know, as a, as a farewell, I'll read the last poem, which is a sort of lullaby. So if you're already asleep, then that's a good excuse. <laughs> Um, it's called Nightfall uh, thank you all very much and, and thank you Sarah and the LRB Nightfall now the flames are falling soft now the sparks like tales of gold night my love the night is here so the blue breeze splays the last of the orchard flowers and so the pollen lightly falls Night's hand in sleep drops open. Scatter me like this, my love. And look, the ghost and the reeds like ghosts bristling in their chilly bed. Love, the world is failing. Come and fail with me. And look, the lonely stranger by the lake kneeling with his silver pail. And in his eyes the fires fall, and across the water's mind the embers shiver, the embers dance. Now the flames are falling soft, now the sparks, the tales of gold. Love, the world is falling, come and fall with me. Thank you. Thank you so much. A real pleasure and privilege. Thank you. And now then, who would like to ask the very first question? Someone has to. (laughs) And the longer you wait, the later (laughs) it gets. We've got Damien at the back there. (laughs) Thank you for that. Um, Thank you both. Uh, You made a comment at the beginning about truth. And I was thinking about the truth that you find or assemble in a memoir and the truth that it seems that you somehow extract from a poem. There seems to be a different way of approaching truth in those different forms of writing. And I wonder if you could talk about that and how your experience of writing both of those um, has has changed your understanding of that idea of what it means to write truth as a writer. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, I think, you know, truth in a memoir, as you know yourself, uh, is it has kind of a physical referent, <laughs> you know, uh, did it happen? And that is one truth in a memoir. Uh, and I kind of, with the memoir, I, I towed quite close to that truth. But then there was the truth of the feeling, which I wanted the reader to feel. Uh, and so uh, the whole purpose of a book <laughs> is to uh, make the reader feel something and how do I get the reader to feel that 
I move in a different direction or I write in a certain way. I use the gothic mode or whatever. And that adds the other truth of the experience. The poem, um, you know, the real is immaterial to a poem. For me, um, it doesn't matter if it happened. A dream is as good a poem as, a, <laughs> as something that did happen. Uh, so what you're looking for, or what I'm looking for in a poem is a, an arrangement of words and a scene that acts as a portal to something beyond the real and into a different sort of truth. If it's, you know, it's hard to define what a, what a poem might be, but something like an exploration of the capacity of words and music to hold truth or to give you access to truth. It doesn't matter if the truth exists in your head before you write it. The truth is the truth of the arrangement of language and music <laughs> um, to get you somewhere. So they're very different sorts of truth. You're right. Um, thank you. Thank you for the reading, Sean. So you talked just then about arrangements of words um, and actually you've also talked about portals and, and journeys. And I guess, you know, the fact that you have sort of different sections across the, the book as well. Um, and for me, there felt like a subject and a tonal shift between each section of mm -hmm. the book. And I wonder if you could talk about the kind of arrangement of the book and that journey. Yeah, thanks. So the book is split into a number of parts, like you say. And I, I kind of thought about them. I've always been struck by, you know, in Piers Plowman, how the chapters are not called chapters, but passes, <laughs> which means steps. Mm. And I kind of wanted them to be like steps, you know. So you begin in one place and then it's a journey. You know, I, I, I had a, originally the idea for the book was that it would be like a dream journey that you start in one place and you go into another so the first part is establishing the parameters of the dream or the lack of parameters of the dream that things might happen and be strange in the book. And I wanted you to feel, I suppose I always want you to feel in a poetry collection that you're moving forward. I know people don't necessarily read like this, but I always would ideally like you to read start to finish. Because, you know, like Sarah said, I, I sometimes I'm, echoing earlier poems as you go through to remind you of, of where you've been on the journey or to, to repeat an image. So I split it into sections, sometimes to hold subjects. So there are uh, a set of poems about my dad uh, in, in the middle, uh, which I didn't want to disperse through. But primarily, I wanted you to feel that you were moving through a sort of verdant night landscape, encountering things on the way and taking steps. And also, you know, the subject of apocalypse or rapture uh, also brought to mind, you know, all of those medieval poems in which you have a dream guide and they might show you what the world, what will happen to the world if you don't stop. <laughs> so I kind of wanted to be your dream guide in a way through the, through the book. So I'm Virgil. Basically. You are Virgil. Yeah. <laughs> Called it. I think there was another question right at the back on, on my right. Uh, thank you for the fabulous reading. A couple of weeks ago, the, uh, the book scan numbers for poetry were revealed. <laughs> and most of the top ten... Sorry, it's very cold. Most of the top ten was stuff that you 
you wouldn't feed to a dog, you know. It's pure kind of insta-poet rubbish. And I'm just kind of wondering, as a poet who is in the kind of mantle of... Someone who's the antithesis of that stuff. Thank you. (laughs) You're welcome. But you would feed it. I kind of just want to know, how do you just get up in the morning? You know? Because... I mean, it's not something that's specific to poetry. The majority of the literary scene is... The stuff that sells is bullshit. Mm. But I just kind of want to know, like, how do you kind of go through that, write your poems, and you know that someone on Instagram is going to sell 100,000 more copies? Um, (laughs) You have, first off, you have very supportive editors and agents who, who make you believe in the value of, of the work that you do in France that make you believe in it. Secondly, I think in the most non-arrogant way possible, you have to believe in the value of it yourself in a, in a degree that's so unshakable that you don't care. Um, and you also have to have a sort of faith in humanity that is difficult sometimes to maintain, that People know good work when they see it. And I do believe that's true uh, for the most part. I know people also don't, but I don't write for those people. So what they buy is kind of none of my concern, if you know what I mean. What people, in general, what people buy is none of my concern. But, you know, to go back to like Joanna Newsom, you know, I was pointing her out before, she's hardly the most popular artist. And... Yet, she's worth to me 5,000 times what a very popular artist is. And I think that that kind of human connection that you get from that sort of art is what you hope that you will give to people. And you have to believe in the importance of that connection over money. And even so, you know, the way that royalties are stacked, you know, they may, they may not be making as much money as you think. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I, pr- I prefer to make, uh, and again, sorry to my publishers, but I prefer to make less money on good work than I would uh, to make um, more money on bad work, fundamentally. So uh, I think, you know, my, my whole family are builders. And I always think about this when people talk about popular things and, and taste, as if it's a kind of class thing. My dad would have known a, a well-built house over a badly built house very quickly. And he would have valued something that took time and effort to make. Um, and that is the thing that I value, you know. Uh, I value something that took time and effort to make. Um, some people don't. Some people will buy bad houses. Some people will buy shoddily built things and, and not care because they're making money. But it's just a different value system. So, yeah. One more question, I think. Is there one over here? Hi. Thank you very much. Theory. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you very much for your reading, Sean. Um, the two of you talked a lot about influences, and you also talked about generations of queer people and queer writing. I'm wondering if you're influenced by two particular queer writers, neither of whom is generally known as a poet. Mm-hmm. And those are the more obvious would be Derek Jarman. Mm. The less obvious would be David Von Yorovich. I'm mm. wondering what your relationship is to these uh, two dear departed. Uh, I can only really speak for Jarman. And actually, 
If you do Google and you go home, you'll find um, a poem that was, I think, Robin originally going to be in this book for Derek Jarman, um, but I took it out. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I really love Jarman. Um, I spent a lot of time with his work, particularly in the last, you know, like five years or something since the retrospective exhibitions. To me, you know, the, the thing beyond all the content that I find very rich in Jarman is the ability to move quickly between forms, to take the popular thing and make it quality, <laughs> which maybe comes back to, to Barry's point there. I like the idea of being, you know, a writer across forms, and I take the example of Jarman to be adventurous, quite seriously. It feels to me like an exciting artist in that way. And also, it's been a while since I returned to his uh, books, uh, and I can't say that they were kind of fundamentally, you know, foundational for me because I, I didn't read Jarman's like Modern Nature until probably like four or five years ago. But he was one of those artists that must have filtered through in many ways because I, when I read him, it was almost like reading, like I was um, plagiarist, <laughs> like I was a plagiarist um, in that I, I was reading his work and thought, oh, I thought I was doing that. <laughs> but he was doing it already. <laughs> and it wasn't because I had... I had read him and copied, but more that um, he must have filtered through culture in such a way as that um, I became very interested in, in him. So yeah, I like him. Uh, and I wish, you know, something that I will never ha have and never do is uh, the, the spark and kind of anger of Jarman, which personally, like, in terms of my personality, I find unsustainable. You'll catch me angry for like a day or two and then I kind of wither out and, and just go back <laughs> into, my, into my house. Um, but that kind of sustained purposeful anger uh, is something I admire a lot but, but couldn't replicate. Thank you all of you, uh, especially those of you who've asked questions. Uh, there are some writers who give one the sense that it's, it's good to be alive when they are and to be there for their work, which is how I feel about your work and how I think we all do. It's good to be alive now and to see this come out and to take part in it. Right. So thank you very much thank for your you generosity. So thank, thank you. you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.